listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Welcome to Belaboured Episode 186. As we tick down toward Episode 200, we bring you strike updates as well as a conversation about nonprofit workers and why they're unionizing. The GM workers are still on the picket lines today, Thursday, as union officials gathered to vote on a tentative agreement as we went to recording. We will have much more next episode when we know the outcome of that agreement. But for now, the details of that agreement remain pretty closely held. We are hearing, though, that Lordstown's plant is not set to be fully reopened and that some of the workers from Lordstown are not pleased. Some of the other bits we've heard are that the deal includes raises and a signing bonus for current workers and perhaps a path to permanent status for the temporary workers, which was one of the main sticking points for the union. We will, of course, bring you much more next episode. The Chicago Teachers Union is on strike again, along with school staff who are members of SEIU Local 73. As we record, it's the first day of the CTU's second major strike in a decade against a second mayor in a decade, and we won't know very much. But it's worth pausing right now as we start to consider the impact that the CTU has had on the U.S. labor movement since 2012. I can absolutely say that Belabored wouldn't exist without the CTU. Our very first guest was Karen Lewis, then CTU president. I highly recommend actually going back to listen to that episode if you haven't already. And in the meantime, while we wait to see what happens, we talk to Kenzo Shibata again from the picket line before he headed into another bargaining session. Kenzo is, of course, former CTU staff, now returned to the classroom, part of CTU's bargaining team, and a longtime friend of Belabored. All right. We are fresh from the picket line with Kenzo, who I just realized is actually on strike as a classroom teacher this time, as opposed to being one of the people who is holding everything together behind the scenes, but not <laughs> technically striking from a classroom. So how does that feel? Tell us first how that feels. Uh, well, going without pay uh, is pretty rough, but uh, it's, it, you know, it's a great feeling. And like, I feel like I have a lot of agency over um, the kind of work we're doing right now, mm-hmm. more so as a rank and file member. Um, yeah. You know, I left uh, the union staff uh, while I was working mm-hmm. for the Illinois Federation of Teachers to go back to my classroom yeah. after an eight-year leave. And um, I, you know, I ran for executive board. I'm on the CPU executive board, and um, I'm also on the bargaining team now. And um, one of the things that makes CTU so unique is how democratic this whole um, negotiation mm-hmm. process has been. I'm on a 40-member mm-hmm. bargaining team. Like we have our small table team, which is the officers right. and our lawyers, yeah. senior staff, but then we have 40 rank-and-file members, teachers, nurses, um, librarians, other clinicians, all like kind of lending our expertise to the process. Yeah, so tell us, what was the, what was the last offer that um, was not good enough and, and sent you guys out on strike? Well, the problem with um, the offers is that uh, nothing that we're asking for um, that will directly positively impact our student lives, uh, the, the Board of Education will put any of that in writing. We have, you know, we have Lori Lightfoot, who's our mayor right now, clever, you know, fair prosecutor, um, just was quoted as saying, I told them that I was going to put it in writing in terms of, like, hiring more nurses and um, counselors, right. but she actually didn't present us anything in writing. She said she was going to put it in writing. Um, so she's just played a lot of games. And it's been very contentious for that. Like, we're 
really trying to use these contract negotiations to, like, right the historical wrongs of the mm-hmm. Chicago public schools. I've yeah. been teaching since 03, and, um, you know, rarely do you see a school that has a nurse every day or even, like, right. three times a week. So that's one of the things that we are fighting for is we want a nurse in every school, and we want um, we want the mayor to put that in writing so we could agree on it and have a contract to go back into our classrooms. Yeah, and so this time around, you're not fighting Rahm Emanuel. You are up against the mayor who, in theory at least, says she agrees with this stuff but doesn't want to put it in the contract. But what's the difference in the feeling between sort of this situation where everybody's mouthing the same things that you want uh-huh. and Rahm, who clearly was out to break the union? Yeah, it's really frustrating because uh, she ran basically when, – when Lori Lightfoot ran for mayor – she ran on a platform that easily could have been just copied and pasted from our marketing demand. And um, people bought it. People um, voted for uh, One of the things that's important to note about uh, Lori Lightfoot, she did win with, like, an overwhelming majority in the runoff election. But that was really only because her opponent, Tony Preckwinkle, was being closely tied to um, a very corrupt alderman in our city who was basically indicted at birth. So that was kind of the way to take that. So Lori Lightfoot doesn't actually have much of a base in Chicago. Like, no one really knew who she was until she ran for mayor. She ran as a reformer who's going to fix the schools and fix public works. And now we're really seeing she's, like, very much like a neoliberal manager, professional managerial type um, who thinks that, like, she could have her way issued through decree. The type of person who conflates power and authority. And she has a mm. lot of authority, but she really doesn't have any power right now. And we're seeing this on the lines at every school in Chicago today. Yeah, that is a really, really interesting point. So we are here. We're back in Chicago. I am also pleased that you guys are back on strike because there's, you know, there's a narrative that goes around that mean, that says that everything started in West Virginia. And mm-hmm. that is, well, belabored listeners know that's wrong because our first episode literally featured Karen Lewis. <laughs> But, you know, I think it's important to talk about the fact that there has been building on the ground, maybe not as noticed by the rest of the country when you're not actually out on the picket line. Tell us a little bit about just like what are the differences in the union from the 2012 strike? You've been through ups and downs. You've been through school closures, a lot of crap, building of some serious political power in Chicago for working people. So what's different yeah, this well, time around besides the mayor? Well, one of the differences is, like, kind of, I mean, one of the big things is the way the media positions things. It is a lot different. Before, the media was really trying to force this narrative of uh, Rahm Emanuel versus Karen Lewis. And they kind of glossed over the fact that, you know, part of what made Karen Lewis such a great leader was that she delegated and distributed power. And mm-hmm. I think that is really coming out right now. We have um, great leaders. We have you know, Vice President uh, Stacey Davis-Gates, who is just a force in the media. Jesse Sharkey, our president, who is, you know, previous vice president. But, you know, really they're always, they always bring up the fact that, like, you have a 40-member bargaining team that, you know, the leadership doesn't rest, you know, solely in their hands. Um, and that's something that's really become, to the, come to the forefront. You know, if you look at our press conferences, uh, it's mostly rank-and-file members advocating for our, for our students. And so... While you're on the picket lines, what should people expect over the next couple of days in Chicago? Oh, what should people expect? Well, we're going to be, you know, picketing at every school. 
every morning from 6.30 to 10.30. Um, we have afternoon actions. Today we're going to the downtown Chicago Public School headquarters to protest. And I know, you know, being a part of CTU, when we have this good decade-long tradition of direct action, there's going to be a lot to, to look out for. You know, we never just go after the boss. You know, we always also go after the boss's boss, which is capital, uh, in some way, shape, or form. And, you know, I am, you know, I'm going back into bargaining with the team um, in about 20 minutes or so. Um, we're pushing. You know, we really want to make sure that uh, we have a solid tentative agreement that we can bring back to members and have them see the gains that we made. Like, the power that we're building on the line right now needs to translate into some gains for our students. And they'll sign off on it if we can bring that back. So that's our goal. Yeah. And one last thing, I understand the parks workers settled last night, but you have mm -hmm. SEIU 75 or 73 school staff workers on strike with you today, right? Yes. Yeah. And so uh, the local 73, yeah, CPS workers. So um, the majority, the vast majority of workers in the building are on the line right now. So I imagine it's a sea of red and purple. You, we have a great strike right. line. We're listening to soul music and dancing in the street right now. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I wish you could see it. Like the spirit is way high. Day one of the strike is always a beautiful thing to see. That was Kenzo Shibata, and you know that we will bring you much, much more on CTU very soon. You might think a California weed dispensary is a cool place to chill out and maybe a dreamy place to work, but even a pot palace is not immune to class struggle. Under a new law just signed by Governor Gavin Newsom, all weed retailers in California, with at least 20 employees, must sign a so-called labor peace agreement. The measure is one of many that will govern the new retail businesses that are expected to crop up all over the state as legal weed proliferates. There have been such laws in the books since 2018, when pot legalization ballot measures were springing up across the state, but the new law actually codifies the labor peace agreement and creates an enforcement mechanism. So why do we need labor peace agreements? The basic framework of an LPA is to ensure mutual neutrality so that unions will have access to workers and be able to organize without interference from the employer, and the unions will be able to focus on organizing without having to directly attack the boss who is attacking them. It's a way that policymakers, consumer groups, and pot purveyors can create an ethical baseline for the industry, and by giving unions a leg up in organizing pot shops, the public benefits of creating a bulwark of unionized shops in the industry will benefit consumers as well. The main union working in the marijuana field, United Food and Commercial Workers, has been organizing in the industry for years and has dubbed itself the nation's, quote, most powerful cannabis union, representing more than 10,000 workers in 14 states. There's also a brief history of legal weed labor activism. A medical marijuana company called the Wellness Connection of Maine recently became a pioneer for pot proletarians when workers walked off the job in protest of the company's use of pesticides. They took their case all the way to the National Labor Relations Board, which led to a settlement that included an official recognition of the labor rights of the wellness workers. The legal marijuana industry is currently growing rapidly, and the weed workforce ranges from cashiers at dispensaries to hydroponic farmers. In an industry that is still so sensitive, medically and politically, unionizing workers could be a way to ensure quality control for good jobs, good health, and the environment. So the next time you're looking for a good toke, look for the union label. We have heard a lot about green jobs and a Green New Deal lately, and so this week when I heard from a belabored listener who's in the middle of unionizing his green job at a company called Bright Power, I called him up to hear all about it. Uh, my name is Chris Schroff. I live in Brooklyn, New York, and I work as an electrician with Bright Power. And so tell us what is Bright Power and what do you do? Um, Bright Power is a large renewable energy and auditing services company in New York City and California. 
some other locations. Um, and I work as a solar installer for BPIC, which is one branch of it. And they do engineering services, retrofit services, um, weatherization, improvements of a host of um, services, engineering consulting. So you're doing those green jobs we keep hearing about. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Me and our crew were up on roofs throughout New York City, up in the North Bronx, South Brooklyn right now, Harlem, um, installing solar panels on mostly low-income and affordable housing projects because of the way the subsidies mm -hmm. and different things work around that. So you are in the middle of fighting to get a union contract at your workplace, right? Can you tell us how that got started? Absolutely. So the process started um, specifically with the union in like January mm -hmm. or February of this year. Yeah. Um, a number of us reached out to the IBEW, International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 3, um, because and to get in touch with the field organizer there. And um, a lot of the reasons that drove us to organize was safety. In October of last year, a full year ago now, there was an entirely avoidable accident that almost killed one of our coworkers. Um, he's been out of work for a year, suffering neurological damage. I don't really want to get the specifics. And that's, that was just really avoidable. There was some uh, pressure from management to, to make a poor choice. Could have been worse. Thank God he survived. Mm -hmm. And then we, you know, wages are a huge problem. We live in a very expensive city, and it's a fairly lucrative industry. Some folks are making a dollar more than, minimum, than New York minimum wage. Doing electrical work is really ludicrous. And then once we started talking to folks, handing out pledge cards during that whole drive, there was another incident where someone was pressured to do work on live electrical equipment um, without sufficient safety precautions being taken that they knew should be taken. They had a minor, they just got a, a small zap, but it's the type of thing that could be fatal or even cause a fire mm -hmm. damaging other folks. Uh, so that really motivated people to organize. Um, they actually went to management first. Folks went to sort of improve safety conditions on their own um, and management wasn't responsive. And eventually we took the decision to sign pledge cards, have an election, um, and then go from there. Yeah. And so you won the election and now we're in the uh, the fun part, as we like to call it around here. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> we underestimated how uh, hard the contract negotiations would be, to be honest. Uh, Bright Power, during the, after the pledge card, before the vote, hired Littler Mendelssohn, um, which is the largest union busting law firm in the U.S., which we were surprised by. Uh, they, Donald Trump, picked someone right from that firm to be on his labor board, uh, so really out of line with the values of the company. Um, but nonetheless, uh, we won the vote with 75%. Uh, we are now in contract negotiations. It's been hard. A couple of folks have been fired. A few folks, um, there's been some harassment um, and just like had some people on hours and different things. So we're down to 12 folks. We were at 25 when we won the vote, but we now have 100% union support. Um, folks are pretty fierce and committed. And conditions have actually improved in the short term and the mm -hmm. field there's new management uh, which i consider a union victory and after a real terrible start to negotiations with bright power practically not speaking at negotiations it was kind of awkward and uncomfortable it's now at the point where local three our our crew has submitted a contract developed it with local three that's on the table and bright power management has their contract and we're working out the details between the two and there's a long way to go but at least at this point we We've started um, meeting regularly. Again, they tried to really resist meeting for a while. Now we're meeting regularly and things are moving in a positive direction. 
So we wanted to talk about this because obviously we're talking a lot about green jobs, a green new deal, things like that. Um, and there's often some opposition from unions on this front because these are new industries and therefore they tend to be non-union industries. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about why it's so important for workers like yourself to be um, front and center fighting for union representation and fighting to be the face of this industry. Absolutely. Yeah, I think um, people talk a lot about green jobs and renewable energy jobs, and there's no real point if they're bad jobs. Solar has all these values around renewable energy and saving the planet, and Bright Power very much identifies as this visionary company trying to improve the planet. But what's the point in saving the planet if only like a handful of folks can in New York pay rent and, and make enough to, to eat? And Local 3 of the IBEW recognizes that solar really has to be at the forefront of the continued um, unionization of trade work in New York City. Solar is obviously a growth industry nationwide, especially here in New York with some of the legislation. And I think it's really important that we, from the beginning, ensure that those jobs work for the people working them, that they're safe, that they're well compensated, and that they have union representation um, moving forward. Situate this a little bit in the context of a Green New Deal, as we're hearing from Bernie Sanders, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the proposals for creating a lot more jobs like yours. Absolutely. I think it's a really exciting moment. And the Green New Deal is, from my reading of it, is not the strongest on in, including unionization um, in that project. And I think it's a key component. Our crew, it's a lot of folks um, that are hired out of Strive International and Solar One, which are organizations here in New York that take economically, you know, help employ and train economically disadvantaged New Yorkers, and that makes us the majority of our crew. Mm -hmm. um, and those folks need to be, you know, those are when they talk about new jobs and and all these these visionary green jobs. Right. It's it's these folks that are often are going to need employment, and we just have to make sure that these jobs actually like benefit the people working them. Because like much, you know, energy production is on the backs of the workers out in the field. And and oftentimes, you know, they're exploitative industries and we have to ensure that that the transition to renewable energy includes like a just transition so that workers have a have a stake at the table, are are able to take care of their families and and, and live decent lives. Excellent. So what are next steps for you and your coworkers? Next steps is we're continuing to negotiate in good faith and hope that the company keeps coming to the table and taking us seriously. And we've also, we're starting to figure out ways to, to ensure that we're building power, um, such as getting in touch with news media and letting the company know that they're not acting in a vacuum, that, the, that the, the city and the world is aware that when you take action against workers, it has, it has consequences. A lot of us at the company were really surprised at the anti-campaign that Bright Power rolled out. They made us sit down to a number of mandatory anti-meetings. Jeff Perlman, the president and founder of the company, tried to really convince us that unions are not the way to go, give him another chance. He literally explained in that meeting that he doesn't even have a yacht, and therefore we should be sympathetic to you know the challenges he's facing, while folks here are unable to pay their bills, unable to feed their families. Yeah. That's pretty insane. Well, he doesn't have a yacht, though, so clearly. So, I mean, like, we're greedy, you know, we're entitled. That was Chris Schroth, an electrician at solar firm Bright Power. 
Every parent knows that childcare is way too expensive, and politicians on both sides of the aisle have acknowledged the importance of providing affordable childcare for working parents. Still, countless families are priced out of quality childcare for their kids. Now, tens of thousands of childcare workers in California will have an opportunity to make the market for childcare fairer for families across the state by collectively bargaining and unionizing. California just passed a new law enabling home-based child care providers who provide their services in private households rather than schools or daycare centers to collectively bargain with the state, which acts as an employer because it pays them through government subsidies. This would give them an opportunity to negotiate wages, benefits, and working conditions while also advocating for expanded access for parents. And the law will give about 40,000 child care workers the opportunity to join a union. Although there are still many families who cannot afford child care and do not have access to a subsidy, collectively bargaining for the subsidized child care sector could be a breakthrough for this largely female workforce. I spoke with two child care workers, Patricia Moran in San Jose and Charlotte Neal in Sacramento, about what the new law will mean for them. This law is not only going to be um, good for us. It's gonna help the community because we are, uh, as soon we are going to have our negotiation, our rights, we can start talking about, you know, about the children we are taking care of because in California is almost two million children in waiting list for a subsidy program for a subsidy spot. It's 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 terrible. The parents, you know, they are suffering a lot of stress. They they have to find, you know, who's going to take care of the kids day by day. And it's not uh, healthy for the children. And also, we are, we were fighting for this, um, this bill for a long time, 15 years, waiting, uh, trying to have our boys here. And it was, it was a very... It was a really hard fight, but we are getting, you know, at the point that we are getting, uh, we are seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. Um, I care for 14 kids, and I'm a 24-hour facility, and um, I work 24 hours because that's what I, I need in order to survive, in order to keep my doors open. Um, my parents come from all kind of walks and backgrounds, and um, from majority of low-income families. Um, that's who I serve and that's who I support. Um, and it's a struggle um, to juggle um, each month to make decisions on what I am going to pay, um, food, supplies for my kids. Um, so it's a struggle for daycare providers and we're struggling um, to stay open. And with this bill, it, help, it can help us uh, with resources, financial, um, education, and also um, just add to a better quality uh, for our kids who we support. And so um, as far as this law goes, I guess, um, what what are some things that you would expect to change about your job? Um, Well, having a seat at the table, um, being able to discuss about what providers um, need, and um, that also will help us. to um, continue to give our kids what they need because they are our main priority. And it gives a better sense for our parents as well, knowing that their kids are getting a good education and that it's quality. That was Patricia Moran in San Jose and Charlotte Neal in Sacramento, two child care workers who are hoping to finally get collective bargaining rights under a new California law. Most of us who are interested in social causes and movements often find ourselves dealing with the nonprofit sector. 
We might work for a nonprofit. We might volunteer with one. We might receive social services through a local nonprofit agency. We might support a grassroots campaign that's led by a nonprofit advocacy organization. The term nonprofit evokes a sense of mission, charity, altruism, and beneficence. Think the Red Cross or Greenpeace. But nonprofit is a legal and financial designation. It's not a stamp of ethical quality. And it is also a workplace. The nonprofit often operates a lot like a regular corporate private sector workplace, in fact. And that's why even nonprofit workers need unions. Still, often shame, guilt, and idealism can cloud a worker's consciousness about the relationship between management and labor, and the role of the nonprofit union, therefore, is to push workers to recognize that the values that an organization purports to uphold in its mission statement does not always match how it treats its own people. I spoke with Kayla Blatto, president of the Nonprofit Professional Employees Union, or NPEU, and she's also communications director at the Economic Policy Institute, an organization that you might be familiar with if you're in the labor movement. She talked about the unique challenges of organizing in the nonprofit world. So the Nonprofit Professional Employees Union is a union of 14 different nonprofits made up of about 300 members that has been around for over 20 years of the Economic Policy Institute, where I work, was the first union to organize with the Nonprofit Professional Employees Union, which is actually part of um a larger union, IFPTE, the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers. Um, and for a long time, NPEU was made up of a few smaller organizations and think tanks. And it wasn't until the last few years, um, one of our largest organizing victories was the Center for American Progress joining NPEU a few years ago. And then since then, we've kind of been organizing a lot more and we've seen a ton of new interest. And we have several units that have just received voluntary recognition, including the Democracy Collaborative and the Washington Center for Equitable Growth. And so we've seen a huge increase in interest in joining unions lately. And so we're getting a ton of organizing leads and um, NPEU is, is definitely going to be growing in the future. I guess I, I was expecting it to be older than 21 years old. Certainly the IFTPE is older than that, right? Yeah, IFPTE is over 100 years old, and they primarily represent government employees in federal government as well as state and municipal workers across the country. And, and But one of their biggest private sector unions is FIA, which re represents Boeing workers in Seattle. Nonprofits, they sort of occupy a particular space in our political landscape. They're not quite corporate workplaces that we usually think of when we think of private sector workers. Um, they're also not really public sector workers in the conventional sense, though some people do consider nonprofits to be public institutions on various levels. Um, so I guess, how does that complicate your job as an organizer? Or perhaps it helps or maybe you think of it as a, maybe it's a boon to your organizing. I, I don't know. I mean, is it um, strange, I guess, to sort of operate in a place where the workplace is also often seen as a place where, you know, people have a certain social mission? Sure. I mean, when you first think about unions, I guess you think about factory workers and production workers. But uh, if you dig a little bit deeper, unions and unions work really well at nonprofits and nonprofit workers are often really in need of the structure and the mechanisms that unions provide. So nonprofits tend to function on a funding model. They get they get grants to operate a project. Um, management feels 
caught between a rock and a hard place, having to fulfill goals set out by the funders, often at the expense of workers, wages, benefits, work environments, that sort of thing. And so often nonprofits are doing really great work. I mean, all of our nonprofits that we have in our organization are all very mission focused um, and they're doing great work to fight oppression and inequality and all sorts of things. But often that work ends up being done by workers who are very easily exploited at the expense of the mission. So um, management can ask people to work longer hours for lower pay and not providing them with the type of resources they need in order to do their job well. Um, and so a union actually helps provide more resources and a framework and, a, and gives these workers a voice on the job so that they can bargain for the things that they need in order for the nonprofit to be more successful. My sense is that the term nonprofit is um, quite huge and amorphous and sometimes abused. <laughs> um, so do you have any thoughts on like, why is it useful then to think about nonprofits as a specific sector? Um, because in my view, I, I think a lot of nonprofits today operate very much like for-profit corporations. Yeah. So non the term nonprofit is a, definitely a catch-all. Um, it's everything from large hospitals to charter schools to direct service organizations to advocacy groups. Like there's a lot of lot that encompasses that. Our specific focus right now is on social service organizations and research institutions. So um, we don't represent any nurses or teachers or anything like that. There are a lot of unions that are doing that and doing a really great job. Um, but but our specific focus right now is on um, research organizations and social service organizations. What are some of the common threads do you find binding different groups in this area together, other than the fact that they're filled with wonky people? Right. <laughs> I mean, it, it's a lot of people who are doing work on fighting oppression, doing research on inequality, finding ways to solve issues that affect a lot of working people. And so the things that these organizations have in common is that they have a lot of people who care about the mission of the organization. And the mission of the organization is everything from solving inequality to doing research on working people to um, helping eradicate the use of sweatshop labor. And so a lot of these organizations have people who are already aware of labor issues that are happening or they're aware of general economic inequality. And so starting a union is just an extension of that. And it shows that there's a way, there's a structure at work where they can solve the problems internally while still working on toward the goal of the mission and solving larger problems. How has organizing been? I see in your <laughs> list of victories, it's often, it's not a contested <laughs> vote. Um, you know, people seem willing to voluntarily recognize the union. Um, is that generally the case? Yeah, I mean, I think once we get cards signed and we ask management for voluntary recognition, there's a, usually a little bit of a moment that they need, they need to take a moment and think about it and talk to their legal team and everything. But generally, I think they understand that the nonprofit is going to be stronger if they have a unionized workforce and if they can work together with the union for the sake of the organization. And so um, a lot of our 
I think most of our units have received voluntary recognition and um, ultimately management is a willing partner to bargain with the unit and um, we can come up with some pretty creative and interesting um, policies in our in our CBAs then. Right. Is it because you are all sort of naturally inclined to think of innovative policy solutions because it's part of your work? Right. I mean, I think a little bit it has to do with that, but I think also sometimes nonprofit management isn't as strong as it needs to be. And and that's the way nonprofits kind of have always uh, functioned. Like management is often made up of people who have been there the longest and they end up getting promoted and they might not have the training that they would at a private sector place to get um, the type of management training, the type of resources that you might get at a place that has a larger budget. And so like there, the management is often happy to have some framework to work within to help solve problems at their organization and have like a way to have a finger on the pulse of the organization and know what is going to help and help raise morale and help people feel appreciated and help um, create more diversity and less turnover, that sort of thing. You recently wrote about the, the whole phenomenon of self-care. Mm-hmm. You weren't specifically addressing the nonprofit sector, but you were talking about how there's this sort of um, cultural inclination to focus on self-driven solutions, I guess, to what are, in fact, large social malaises that need to be dealt with collectively. How do you think that applies specifically to nonprofits? You're probably dealing with a lot of people who maybe are not used to thinking of themselves necessarily as as victims of of an economic system that they are working to help change every day. Um, You know, there's sort of a maybe a myopia that comes with working in a sector, like not recognizing exploitation um, when it's happening sort of right in front of you. I think that we've been told recently as a society that um, it's if you're feeling burned out, if you're feeling stressed out, there are things that you can do you can, to solve this problem in your own life. You can get a massage. You can start eating better. You can sleep more. Like all of those things are super important. And I think that we all don't forget mindfulness. mindfulness. Yeah. Mindfulness, meditation. I mean, all of these things have a place in, in society. I'm not saying that people should not pursue these. And I think obviously everyone can use a little bit better sleep and better nutrition habits. You know, I know I can. And, but I think that like that's that's all well and good, but that's not actually going to solve the issues at your workplace. If there are systemic issues, if you have you know high turnover because of low wages, if you have a lack of diversity because of low wages and because of like a lot of like inept management or lack of diversity already, like that's not going to actually solve the issue. Like eating a salad isn't going to change the power structures at your workplace. But like joining together with your colleagues and actually working towards some systemic change, building um, some different power structures and finding out what solutions would actually solve these issues at your workplace. is That's the only solution. That's what's going to solve all these problems at your workplace. And self-care, I think, is just another victim blaming dismissal. And it's just another way to get you to spend money and feel bad about yourself for not doing enough. But I think that, I mean... I think that joining a union is really the biggest thing you can actually do to change your day-to-day workplace. 
just thinking about like workers in the nonprofit sector, they often refer to it as the white collar sweatshop. And there's um, sort of a currency of of guilt (laughs) and shame Mm -hmm. that probably uh, goes along with this work. Is that something that you encounter a lot as an organizer in the sector? And I guess, how do you overcome that? And like, how are you able to persuade people to, um, you know, start thinking about themselves as, as workers with some intrinsic value in terms of the labor that they contribute, uh, rather than just, you know, people who are uh, in the struggle <laughs> and, and must struggle all the time. I think nonprofit workers feel exploited overall. A lot of them do. A lot of them feel like they're working longer hours for lower wages um, and they're not getting professional development. They're not getting the same opportunities as their friends who are working in private sectors. And so I think, I mean, it's, it's pretty apparent if you need, if you're working, uh, you know, an entry level job at a nonprofit and you need to work two jobs just to pay rent, something's not right here. And especially younger nonprofit workers that are, that are becoming more progressive and more pro union already are ready to dive in and create some systemic change. So I think it takes a little bit of organizing and focusing the energy on what the solutions are. But I think that a lot of nonprofit workers are already ready to dive in. Can you think of examples that you've seen in sort of your career as an organizer and what you've seen major changes in the way um, workplace has operated um, once they unionize with you? And I guess some of those types of solutions that you were citing earlier about you know th- ways that um, that unions can um, sort of bring a different perspective uh, to the table when um, trying to think about how a workplace might run better. Our MO is not to completely disrupt and destroy the workplace. I mean, the people who work at these nonprofits care about the mission. Everyone understands they're not going to get rich working at a nonprofit, but they at least deserve the dignity and respect that everyone else has or should have on the job. Often we get, we get organizing inquiries because people are having the same type of issues at their nonprofit. They're, um, have kind of nebulous job duties. They, have high turnover, their management is like not managing them well enough, they have um, low pay, not great benefits, and they don't want to jump ship. They want to help build the institution and make it better. And so we really work with them to try to build the institution and make it better and make it a place where people don't have to be able to afford to work there and that they can actually develop a career and have a have a have benefits that support them at every stage of their life. And so um, some of the ways that our unions have improved are um, by giving um, paid parental leave, for example. So a lot of our units have between 8 and 16 weeks of paid parental leave. They have paid vacation days, uh, paid sick days, tuition reimbursement, retirement savings, um, annual cost of living increases that are, are standardized and people can expect them. And so I think it the all of these things and, and just having regular communication with management, in addition to a contract, having monthly labor management meetings where there's a check-in with management, I think helps prevent issues before they get worse and helps work. You can work on initiatives to help improve the workplace together. And so a lot of our organizations have really benefited from this and they appreciate having they appreciate having a structure that is more formalized than a handbook and actually has some accountability associated with it. 
you said you're, you know, you're, you don't set out to disrupt and destroy workplaces, which have you ever had a strike? Um, we haven't had a strike. We've had some come close to a strike, but we've able, been able to resolve them. Is it, is it ever surprising sometimes um, when employers don't necessarily, in their labor negotiations, don't necessarily reflect the values that the think tank or whatever they, they're part of um, are, is supposed to represent? Yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of these nonprofits really view themselves as change makers, and they're working often within a national framework of trying to push policies or do research or um, come up with, with solutions to address inequality. And then often they have, they turn a blind eye to their own issues at their workplace and they don't listen to their staff when their staff say, no, we need, we can't afford to live here. We need higher wages. We need health care. We can't afford these things and we need this problem to be solved. And often I think, I mean, sometimes management doesn't see the problem as, as big as it is, or they think that the union is exaggerating. But the, the fact of the matter is, like, people are organizing and fighting for these things, and they're not quitting and finding another job. They want to make, they want to improve their workplaces. And so if they have done all the work of coming up with a solution and talking to their colleagues and organizing for it, I, I think management should listen, at least hear them out and hear what their solution is, because I think they know better than anyone else at the organization what the issues are and what needs to be solved. Do you have a sense of the, the demographics of your membership? I don't have any formal data, but just anecdotally. So we do have, I mean, the nonprofit sector, particularly in D.C., where most of our units are, is definitely an educated workforce. But as the U.S. economy kind of moves more toward uh, office-centered work and less uh, focused on like production work, I think that that kind of represents the new workforce. And um, we have a lot of young people who are pretty interested in the labor movement and in unions, um, and they view themselves as more progressive. Um, and then nonprofits have kind of a diversity problem as a whole, where since wages are lower, people often can't afford to work there unless they are independently wealthy, have someone supporting them, or they work there and then they have to work several jobs or cut costs somehow and then it's unsustainable and they have to leave. And so having a union is one way to address that and try to create a more diverse nonprofit workforce because you can create higher wages, you can provide flexible work schedules, all these things that are going to actually help bring in people who have real lives that are more complicated or they, they need more support or that kind of thing. And that, that helps bring in younger people, women and people of color. Going forward, I, I think MPU is a fairly young union. I, like, where do you see the union going in the future? And I guess, um, do you see yourself expanding beyond the world of research institutes and think tanks to cover things like, I don't know, um, other nonprofit institutions? Well, for right now, we are getting a ton of organizing leads and a lot of interest. Nonprofit workers across the country have seen what we're doing and they're reaching out to us. We get dozens of requests every week. Obviously, not all of those are a great fit for us or they should. there are local unions that we can connect them with elsewhere. But we, ha we are anticipating expanding a lot in the next few years. Um, 
we're working with a few units right now on collecting cards, and so we'll be um, asking for voluntary recognition for a few a few new places uh, probably this fall. So I can keep you updated on that. But yeah, I think that as the nonprofit sector grows and as um, nonprofit workers kind of gain this class consciousness and realize that they are workers like everyone else, that I think we're going to have our work cut out for us because a lot of nonprofit workers are interested in joining a union. For the nonprofit sector as a whole, maybe perhaps this should be a warning to them that, that um, you know, they, they are not immune from the very issues that they often sort of uh, pontificate on. Totally. Yeah, I mean, they should. They should pay their staff well. They should provide the same benefits that that they're advocating for. I mean, that's that's why people are forming unions. I mean, they, it's not sustainable. The system isn't sustainable how it currently is. And so they're trying to improve their workplaces. Does it ever surprise you when you see workplaces that are supposed to um, be you know, organized around certain principles, somehow tending to lapse on those um, when it comes to treating their own workers. Yeah, I mean, a boss is a boss is a boss, no matter where you are. And so even in nonprofits that advocate for reducing economic inequality, you're going to get people who are fighting against whatever the union is fighting for in order to improve their own life. But I do think that if the workers can effectively organize and explain and bargain for the solutions that they're that they're asking for. I mean, management generally, in, in our experience, management comes around to it and understands that it's going to create a, a better, more sustainable organization for them and kind of solve some issues that they're that they probably have to deal with already. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's surprising, but uh, I think that our union can kind of overcome it. That was Caleb Lado, president of the Nonprofit Professional Employees Union. I also spoke with Adam Simpson of the Democracy Collaborative. They're currently working with NPEU and in the midst of negotiating their first contract. The Democracy Collaborative is a think tank that works on a variety of issues, but um, all of it is oriented toward what we kind of term as as building a democratic economy in terms of public ownership of utilities or making uh, cooperative energy utilities more democratically run, or whether that means uh, democratizing uh, economic democracy in the form of anchor institutions like hospitals altering their procurement to uh, buying from local producers, cooperative producers, things like that, uh, which was recently featured in the New York Times. That's the type of work that Democracy Collaborative does, doing some research on what, what it means to have a democratic economy, and as well as trying to put that into practice in different ways. And in terms of the organizing drive, the organizing drive has been kind of you know, we got recognition um, last year in 2018 in August, and we asked for recognition in, uh, I want to say it was April of 2018. Um, but the reality is that the conversations around organizing went back several years. That was even before I got there. And it was based around different issues in the organization, um, uh, from racial equity in particular to uh, thinking about more equitable forms of pay and, uh, and you know, it at the democracy collaborative we talk about economic democracy so and it's a pretty progressive organization uh so it was kind of natural for the employees to begin thinking about what would it mean to make the democracy collaborative itself more democratic which has been kind of a centerpiece of our 
uh, bargaining. But that's been uh, really the organizing drive. But when I think about organizing nonprofits, I assume that it's it's really this is the first time I've been an organizer, to be clear. But I assume it's not that different from organizing in other industries. Um, it's about you know getting protections in the form of just cause, uh, making sure that people can't be uh, fired or retaliated against. Um, it's about, uh, you know, uh, trying to make more equitable pay structures, formalizing uh, different job job ladders and things like that, um, a, a, a wide array of issues. Since your the general ethos of your organization is economic democracy, have you faced any unexpected uh, setbacks or challenges? Um, well, to be clear, I, I mean, again, I would say I would say that uh, management uh, interpreted the organizing drive in, the, in a way that probably management in most other industries interprets the organizing drive, uh, regardless of politics. I mean, I think that uh, at our organization and at any organization, the boss has a lot of power. And even if the boss has good politics, uh, even if the boss is very friendly and nice, you know, at the end of the day, a union organizing effort is about taking power away from them and redistributing it and, you know, building protections from it. So um, we've encountered, I would say, issues that probably everyone that's organized a union hasn't encountered. For instance, we argued for a while over, you know, the scope of our bargaining unit, you know, who's in and who's who's out of the union. And, uh, you know, when it comes to the issues themselves, we, we got tripped up in a, on a few things. We overcame them. And, I, you know, uh, I should say we're moving toward ratification of our contract now. I fully expect the union to ratify it. And I'm hopeful that management will ratify it on their ends. And we'll probably be able to celebrate that very soon. I'm very proud of what we've achieved. But I would say that it was, you know, um, a it was it was bargaining, you know, and it was a struggle like it, it, you would find at any organization, regardless of politics. You noted that the organizing process is maybe not that different, whether you're talking about nonprofit organizations or, or regular corporations. Since this is your first time organizing, are there any takeaways or advice you think you'd like to um, impart to other people, perhaps other people at other nonprofits who are thinking about doing this? I mean, should should every nonprofit organization be unionized? I think you know, pretty much. Uh, every uh, business uh, and organization should be organized, and I would ex- extend that to not to nonprofits. For nonprofits, I would say there, there was a good article by Ramson Cannon um, and Jackman recently about organizing nonprofits, uh, and he basically what he talked about is that you know nonprofits in many ways you know and there are kind of galaxy brain takes where, you know, there's no surplus value in nonprofits and kind of nonsensical uh, perspectives like that. But, uh, and, and in this article, Ramson points out that like, you know, in many cases, you know, nonprofits aren't exactly crowdfunding their work. They're getting it from rich people. And where do you think they got their money? And uh, at the end of the day, it's good to have democratic structures like unions uh, at those organizations to help democratize and kind of uh, make sure that that money is being used in specific ways and not and not abused in, in other ways. But in terms of takeaways, I would say that uh, one thing that I've learned is that it's it's always uh, more successful to be uh, ambitious rather than kind of cautious. Or I think a lot of times caution feels like you're being strategic, like you're playing the long game. When in reality that, uh, you know, when you have power, uh, it's, it's important to recognize it and wield it. Um, I think that's one thing that I've learned is that, you know, um, 
it's helpful to be very clear about what power you have, what power you don't. But the power that you have, it, it's it does you no good holding it in your back pocket for that one occasion you're going to need it. When you when if you have it, you should use it. That's that's the thing I've learned about uh, organizing. You were discussing before the some of the um, mythology surrounding nonprofits and sort of mm-hmm. this attitude that you know because these organizations ostensibly have a good mission, um, they they should be exempt from some of the <laughs> the um, principles and um, you know sort of accountability standards that we would apply to uh, for profit businesses. Do you think that's a pervasive attitude for people who work in nonprofits and uh, maybe a barrier to sort of raising their consciousness as labor? <laughs> Definitely. What I've heard in my experience is people either in the unit or in management or whatever that are that kind of come at this as like, you know, what we're doing, we're trying, you know, at the Democracy Collaborative, we're trying to um, uh, transform uh, the, our current economic system. That's what we're trying to do. And you can't do that on 40 hours a week. And you can't, you, you know, it, you, it's we don't have much money. And what we're, we're doing is the Lord's work. So, you know, asking for more money uh, your organization is isn't really what we're in this for. This is a mission-driven organization, and our, our our stakeholders are the public. And you know, you get all of that mythology. But again, I don't actually think that's different. If you think about it, in, uh, from other union organizing campaigns I've read about, like when when GM refuses to pay their workers more, their argument is that you know we have to uh, we have to keep prices low so that we can sell to your average American worker. So we can't pay pay you more. So the argument is always like we're doing we're doing good for the public. So you, we can't give you a raise. Everyone is making tough choices and. And, you know, you're at you're at the the bottom of the uh, of the organizational pyramid. So you're the one that has to take the brunt of it. You're the one that has to work for, especially in the nonprofit world. Uh, I, I should say at, at the Democracy Collaborative, we're paid pretty well, frankly. That's not why we organize. But and a lot of nonprofits, especially in D.C. where I'm located, I, I mean, I, I worked at another nonprofit where I got paid. Uh, you know, living paycheck to paycheck. That that's not easy. And I know a lot of nonprofit workers end up doing that. Because that's that's the conditions that we're working with. Yes, and perhaps you know, um, there's often a gendering of the nonprofit workforce that <laughs> leaves yeah. um, women absorbing a lot of the um, undercompensated work, and there's sort of this uh, layer of shame around <laughs> demanding more money or demanding yeah. even a living wage. <laughs> especially uh, from my perspective, my observation being, you know, especially the administrative workers who the organization literally comes to a halt, a screeching halt over. They're the ones that really get overlooked um, uh, and by, you know, the pay scales, because it's the, I think the perspective is kind of like, well, if, if we if we didn't have them, we could find someone else. But, you know, this person that does this research, they're irreplaceable. But and, and at, at the end of the day, you know, without the without the union, I think we're all viewed as irreplaceable. But in particular, I think you're absolutely right. It, it definitely affects certain workers more in terms of and, and then those those positions are, are often gendered. And is there anything else you want to say about your organization in particular, what you're looking forward to as the contract talks proceed? Uh, well, I'm looking to celebrating our contract. I'm really proud of some of the things that we were able to achieve. Um, the Democracy Collaborative is going to be uh, a more democratic organization once we have this contract ratified, and that includes a an observer seat on our board. Um, and our, you know, our the the that that to me is a really important accountability mechanism as the organization moves forward. It's kind of a medium-sized nonprofit, and I expect it to grow. And having uh, a worker voice at the top of the organization. Uh, 
means a lot to me in terms of accountability and how that's going to get fed up uh, or fed up through the kind of the structure of the organization. We've achieved open book management. We've achieved a lot of uh, really awesome things that are going to make the organization strong and transparent and accountable. And I, I look forward to what the union is going to mean for the organization in the long run. That was Adam Simpson, a program associate with the Democracy Collaborative and a member of their newly formed union. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And now it is time for everyone's favorite segment, ARG, I wish I'd written that. This week, I am having, as you are sure, I'm sure you're all shocked to hear, strike FOMO. I wish I was in Chicago, but the fact remains that Chicago is home to a few of the country's best labor reporters, and I could not possibly do a better job than my former colleague Rebecca Burns at In These Times, whose piece, What's at Stake in Chicago Teachers' Strike, Whether Unions Can Bargain for the Entire Working Class, digs into the history of what we now call bargaining for the common good, which has deep roots within the CTU. Burns writes, explaining the framework, quote, In 2013, citing inspiration from Chicago, the St. Paul Federation of Teachers worked with community allies to jointly draw up a list of 29 demands to bring into its contract negotiations, including the expansion of preschool, reforms to school discipline procedures, and the reduction of standardized testing. While the school district initially refused to negotiate over 18 of these areas, a united front by teachers and community members eventually pressured it to include language on almost every area in the SPFT's new contract. I had negotiated almost a dozen previous contracts for the SPFT, explained the union's then-president Mary Catherine Ricker in a 2015 article for Oh Hey! Dissent. But for the first time, I felt that signing a contract was just one step in building a larger movement. These victories helped give birth to a formal network called Bargaining for the Common Good, which now includes some 50 unions and community organizations. The goal is to expand labor's scope of bargaining beyond wages and benefits, to advance a broad working class agenda, and go on the attack against shared enemies, including Wall Street and corporate America. End rather long quote. The teachers and school staffers, not to mention the park service workers, have also been making demands over how to fund the programs they're calling for. CTU has long criticized the city's tax increment financing, TIF program, which gives public money to private developers. And SEIU 73 workers, Burns writes, quote, waded into what's often a third rail for public sector unions when they protested outside Chicago Police Department headquarters to demand the city stop diverting resources from schools and parks to the police budget, end quote. Now, with this strike, CTU is making demands around housing, aiming to expand the bargaining for the common good framework even further than other unions have. The United Teachers Los Angeles, as you heard on this podcast earlier this year, made some bargaining demands around affordable housing in this year's strike. But the CTU's demands go even further. Burns writes, quote, the school district doesn't keep statistics on how housing displacement ultimately contributes to school enrollment, but anecdotal evidence suggests that in many neighborhoods, they're closely linked. In in Albany Park, a gentrifying neighborhood in the city's northwest side, the Autonomous Tenants Union documented how a 2017 mass eviction in a single building being rehabbed by its new owner impacted some 30 children who attended Hibbert Elementary. Data from a study released in May shows that the eviction rate is twice the citywide average in some black neighborhoods, including ones where schools were shuttered in 2013 due to purported under-enrollment. Thanks to the model known as student-based budgeting, when students and their families have been forced out of school, 
funding follows them. This cycle of housing displacement and school disinvestment has played a prominent role in driving thousands of Black residents from Chicago each year. End quote. The CTU's demands include hiring staff to support students and their families in danger of eviction, a program to help CPS teachers buy homes in the city, funding for Section 8 and housing rehab to house homeless students, and more. And as you heard from Kenzo earlier on today's show, the mayor says she supports the CTU's demands, but they have yet to make it into their contract. My pick for ARG is The Connection Between Pipelines and Sexual Violence by Nick Martin in The New Republic. So this is not exactly a labor story, but it is a story of how working-class people have seen their lives degraded under the yoke of the fossil fuels industry. It begins with an environmental story you've probably seen in the headlines lately, the construction of the Keystone XL pipeline. For years, the construction plans have been held up by a transnational resistance movement that has targeted the pipeline as a symbol of the oil and gas industry and how it systematically violates the territorial and human rights of indigenous peoples across the Western Hemisphere. The protests raised the profile of indigenous activism in the U.S. and Canada and led to a revival of the environmental movement, paving the way for the mass mobilizations on climate change that we see today. People living near the pipeline fear the threat of destruction of local habitats, toxic exposures, and the impunity of corporations in the extractive economy. For workers, a big industry with big construction plans is a big draw, and many oil and gas boom towns have emerged around the country in recent years, often chasing after a growing market for fracked natural gas as well as oil drilling, which the Keystone Project would help facilitate. But for the locals, the influx of new workers that rushes in with a new pipeline construction plan could spell deep trouble. Local tribal communities are rejecting not only the pipeline, but also another initiative that was recently created by the state senate, the Missing Indigenous Persons, or MIP, task force. The task force was commissioned to investigate the epidemic of missing, murdered, and otherwise abused indigenous women and girls, a phenomenon that has haunted not only the U.S., but Canada as well. And like fossil fuel pipelines, the issue of missing indigenous women has brought the two countries together in crisis and helped generate cross-border solidarity movements aimed at seeking justice for marginalized, disenfranchised tribal communities. Martin reports that in 2017 alone, 5,646 Native women were reported missing in the U.S. Nationwide, the murder rate for Native women is 10 times that of the average American. The causes of this scourge range from a lack of clear law enforcement jurisdiction in Indian country to the general social isolation and deprivation surrounding the whole community, and especially Native women. The only thing more disturbing than these stunningly disproportionate crime figures is the utter silence with which most politicians have responded. The MIP task force was a hard-fought effort by lawmakers to finally start to examine and remedy this problem. So why has the pipeline project gotten in the way? While the tribal communities see the assault on their land as part of a broader conspiracy of erasure and genocide, and the bodies of missing and murdered indigenous women are also casualties of this crisis. Martin explains, quote, Pipelines, a growing body of research suggests, can actually fuel violence against Native women, unquote. The work camps that are set up for temporary laborers for pipeline projects, known as man camps, have sprawled across the country along pipelines that stretch across rural areas, and abusive, exploitative behavior often follows. Martin writes, quote, a number of studies, reports, and congressional hearings now connect man camps, which can be used in mines and other extractive efforts as well, with increased rates of sexual violence and sex trafficking. Because pipelines are typically rooted through rural communities, local law enforcement, oftentimes already stretched thin, are left trying to police a sudden, months-long influx of hundreds of outsiders, unquote. The exploitation of women metastasizes in the patriarchal realm of the man camp. An extensive study of missing and murdered indigenous women and girls by the Canadian government, quote, pinpointed extractive industries and man camps as hotbeds of violence, unquote. 
If the Keystone XL project is fully implemented, South Dakota and Montana's reservation communities would be directly adjacent to the pipeline route and put them in the path of about 1,000 pipeline construction workers. Now, of course, it would be simplistic to say that sex trafficking and sexual violence are the inevitable product of construction sites that host large concentrations of male temporary workers. The story behind patterns of sexual violence, especially in Indian country, is always far more complicated than the media and politicians typically present. But the phenomenon of the man camp is a living embodiment of the dehumanization of labor and the moral vacuum that emerges from the depths of the extractive industries. This is also a story of how working people are the victims of these industries. The impoverished tribal communities that have seen their lands plundered for profit are often compelled to accommodate these exploitative, polluting enterprises on their territories because no other means of economic survival are available to them. And the pipeline workers, too, are reflections of this relentless rush to drill, pump, pipe, and burn. They, too, are subjected to dangerous conditions, toxic hazards, and extreme isolation. Sex work, survival sex, and sexual assault are part of the collateral damage of this slow-burning crisis. So following the Montana government's brazen embrace of Keystone XL, it's hard for tribal communities to take seriously the state's overtures towards investigating violence against Native communities. To them, a landscape littered with man camps and women's bodies shows that what the state does take seriously is oil, and life on these lands is worth much, much less. And that does it for this episode of Belabored. Thanks as always to Natasha for making us sound good and thanks for tuning in. Tune in in another two weeks for updates on the GM strike as well as the Chicago Teacher Union strike. And you can get all of our archived episodes at DescentMagazine.org. There you can also sign up for a sustaining membership and support this podcast and Descent Magazine. And feel free to send us feedback or get in touch with story ideas at hashtag belabored on Twitter. You can tweet at us if you are a Chicago teacher or a UAW worker, or if you are trying to unionize your local pot dispensary, or if you are a frustrated member of the nonprofit industrial complex. We want to hear from you. You can also email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. Over and out. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored.